From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. This song, Daisy Bell, wasn't a hit in 1961, but it was a triumph. The singer, the IBM 7094, the largest, most expensive commuter available at the time. And thanks to James Carmen, professor at the Agriculture School at the University of Georgia, UGA bought one in 1964. Not only could the computer sing, it helped put man on the moon. Bo Emerson is a reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He wrote about Carmen's critical contribution to the space race and joins us to talk about it. Welcome, Bo. Thank you, Virginia. Thanks for being here. Also with us by phone is Professor Carmen's daughter, Lee Carmen. She's joining us from WGA in Athens. Lee, thank you so much for being here. Good morning. I'm pleased to be here. So what did your father do at UGA? Uh, He was director of the Computer Center. In fact, he founded it in 1957, and prior to that, he was a professor in the School of Agriculture, and um, his time as director of Computer Center, I don't remember now how long he was in that position, but then he moved up to an assistant to the university president, and he was also on the staff of the Board of Regents. But in 1964, when this computer was purchased, Bo, mm-hmm. you write that he specialized in broiler chickens. What kind of work was he doing? Okay, well, that was part of his sort of statistical analysis, uh, and that might have been like earlier in his career, but he was, besides being in the School of Agriculture, he was interested in collecting and analyzing statistics, and uh, he figured that uh, he could use that computer to do that and a variety of other things as well. So how did a professor in the agriculture department talk the university into buying a computer? Lee, I imagine the computer must have been pretty expensive at the time. Um, I understand it was, yes. Um, I was quite young at the time, so I don't remember. I really don't know the, the specifics of it, but knowing my father, he was quite the visionary and passionate about computer technology and what it could bring to the University of Georgia, and I'm sure he shared that passion with others, and that's how they bought into acquiring the computer. He must have been pretty persuasive. Yes. So, Bo, describe the 7094 and what it could do and why. What was the interest of of UGA having it? Well, I think uh, James Carmen was the interest in UGA having it, and uh, the 7094 was, if you uh, think about these room-sized computers, uh, I, I got the specs on it, and they said, I think that this was 26,000 pounds of computer. It, it, some parts of it had to be hung from the ceiling because the building that it was in didn't have enough floor space for <laughs> oh it. Goodness. But at the same time, it, was, it, it only had about 30 kilobytes of memory, which is not as much as your dishwasher. Wow. And they paid $3 million for it back in the 60s today, about $25 million. How did NASA get involved with UGA and the computer bill? Well, the uh, one of the things that Carmen did was he figured a way to pay for the computer was to find other folks who might want to rent time on it. And uh, he did that very successfully. Apparently, he paid the thing off in a year. And uh, NASA was one of the customers, not just um, uh, from uh, Alabama, but also uh, the uh, lo- folks at Lockheed came down and used it to do some uh, numbers on, their, uh, on the engines for those Saturn V rockets. So that's how we would... Was proposing to help pay it off to rent out space on the computer. Oh, and he did it so well. In fact, even after he'd paid it off, apparently he continued to make money on it until the IRS said, hey, you have to uh, stop uh, charging
challenging to use this computer because it doesn't belong to you. Lee, do you think your dad knew when the university bought the computer how beneficial it would be and it would actually help NASA do the calculations to put humans on the moon? I I really don't know. I think he probably saw it just as a larger tool that anyone could use, and that was always his goal with computing and getting it started on the campus and ultimately the network in the state of Georgia was just making it accessible to people. Now, we should also note that there are several universities in Georgia that helped in the moon effort. Oh, yeah. Well, of course, the folks at Georgia Tech point out that they have graduated 14 astronauts from their program, including John Young, who walked on the moon. And I think he also uh, drove the rover around in an irresponsible, reckless way up there. <laughs> well, we don't want to slight any other universities. But both the football coach at UGA also used the computer. How was it beneficial to the team? Uh, this is the uh, sort of the surprise element in this story to me. But um, uh, Vince Dooley uh, uh, tells me that one of his uh, assistants coaches somehow knew how to not only um, gather statistics on opponents, what they would do on fourth down, uh, on third and goal, what uh, whether they would pass or run, and they uh, figured out how to uh, input this info into the computer, get it out and, in, a, in a form that he could use. And somehow it helped him because he turned around a losing program into one that was winning for the next four years. So a number of human feats accomplished with the help of the <laughs> IBM 7094. Well, where's the, where is the 7094 now? Oh, this is a sad story. <laughs> no, tell me. Uh, the, uh, it was as you know, already getting ready to be uh, uh, old by the time it was created. And uh, it sat around for a few years. They bought newer IBM computers, took up space, and finally they uh, essentially sort of decommissioned it. And then they took sealed bids. And I'm told that the bid uh, from the guy who finally carted it off was 10 bucks. And he huh. took it and he stripped all the gold out of the, uh, the various uh, internal components and... Uh, and then threw the rest away. Oh, my goodness. Lee, did you ever go and visit this? You said you were very young, but did you yes. ever see it? Yes, I did. Um, I remember as a child, I used to go in Saturday mornings with my dad to the office. And one of my favorite things to do was sit at the key punch machine. He'd give me about a dozen cards to play on, and I just key punched them to death. And um, then I could go in the room and, and look at the computer, and I just remember seeing the big cabinets everywhere and that it was loud and cold. <laughs> Were you one of the first kids to have a computer at home with your father being into computers and analytics? Oh, gosh, probably not. <laughs> I, so, I, I like technology, but in its place, and I was doing a lot of other things as a kid. So I'm wondering, you know, when you watched that moon launch as a child, or did your father have any memories of it? Did he think of it like that? Did he think that he had played a role in helping human beings take those steps on the moon? You know, I, I have no memory of him talking about it, and that's kind of the person he he would have been. He he just quietly did these achievements. Uh, I should say, at least from what I heard. and um, But I do remember being glued to the TV watching it, and it was very much a family event to watch the moon landing. Mm. 
This is going to be a week where a lot of people think about where they were when the moon landing happened or, you know, where they first heard about it. I'm wondering, Bo, do you have memories of that time? Oh, I do. I was uh, uh, sleeping over at a, at a cousin's house and uh, they I guess they woke us all up. I was rather young, and and brought us downstairs to look at a very small black and white uh, TV, and uh, it looked like more interference patterns than than, uh, an image, but I, uh, I did have a sense of what was going on. What a, what a forethought that your father had, Lee. I want to thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. And Bo Emerson also. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Virginia. Bo Emerson wrote about James Carman's critical contribution to the space race for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution by persuading the University of Georgia to invest what would be like $25 million today in a huge computer. And Professor Carman's daughter, Lee Carman, was also with us. Now, let us know where you were or what you remember about the moon landing. Our Facebook group is GPB Radio's On Second Thought. We're on Twitter at OST Talk. You can email us at onsecondthought at gpb.org or leave us a message, 404-500-9457. UGA's Richard B. Russell Library is celebrating the anniversary with an exhibit of rare items collected during the Apollo 11 mission. The collection includes the Georgia State flag, which traveled to the moon on the spacecraft, also on view part of a spaceship. On Tuesday from 12 to 2, you can see the star of the show, a rock, a moon rock to be specific, given to the state of Georgia in 1972. We're listening to the song Moon Rocks by Talking Heads as we learn more. All Things Considered intern McKenna Smith spoke with Sarah Anderson, a graduate student intern at the Russell Library for Political Research and Studies. It is an exhibit to spotlight the Apollo 11 landing. Um, Since July 20th is the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. Um, And we utilize the collections uh, here at the Richard B. Russell Library Uh, specifically Senator Russell's collection since he served on the Committee Aeronautical and Space Sciences from 1958 until his death on January 21st, 1971. Um, Many of the pieces in our collection were gifted to Senator Russell due to his influence on the space race. Uh, The university got the rocks because they're part of the Capitol collection, and the Capitol falls under the purview of uh, the University of Georgia libraries. Um, So we are borrowing from the from the Georgia Capitol Collection. The moon rocks that we have were collected um, from Richard Nixon. Uh, President Nixon had a goodwill mission that gave out uh, moon rocks in the 1970s to all 50 states. Um, These rocks were collected um, on the Apollo 11 mission and the Apollo 17 mission. And the rocks were given out in connection with Uh, the state flags that were sent to the moon on the Apollo 11 mission as well. Um, The rocks are quite small because the Apollo 11 mission only brought back about 50 pounds worth of uh, moon matter. So the the rocks that we that were given out to each state uh, were quite quite small but they are very important to us as as a state. 
Um, and so our exhibit um, is meant to provide visitors the opportunity to remember and reminisce um, on one of the most important events of the 20th century and provides opportunity for families to bring their children and grandchildren um, to provide information and remember the experience that they had in regards to the moon landing. That was Sarah Anderson, graduate student intern at UGA's Russell Library. The Moon Rock will only be on display Tuesday at the Russell Library in Athens from noon to 2. You can bring the kids along to try some astronaut ice cream. Other items in the collection will be on display until the end of December. And we would love to know, who is your favorite astronaut, real or fictional? Join the conversation on our Facebook group, GBB Radio's On Second Thought. We're on Twitter at OST Talk. You can email us, onsecondthought at gpb.org, or leave us a message at 404-500-9457. Coming up, a look at how Georgia's controversial abortion law intersects with the opioid crisis. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for that and more on Second Thought. And last week on the show, we spoke about Freaknik, asking whether it was a public health or safety disaster, or was it a triumph of black expression? Well, Sam Burnham said the former is the truth. The latter is sensational romanticism. Jason Hoke said he loved the podcast about Freaknik, a discourse in a paradise lost, said it's one of his top 10 so far this year. Well, you can let us know what you think about what we're doing on the program. Go to our Facebook group, where GBB Radio is on Second Thought. We are on Twitter at OST Talk. You can always email us on Second Thought at gbb.org. And who knows, your comments could make it onto the air. And we're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. The indictment of an Alabama woman on manslaughter charges for allegedly starting a fight that led to her getting shot and having a miscarriage drew outrage from across the globe. Ultimately, the prosecutor decided not to pursue the charge, but the indictment opened up a conversation about negligence and culpability for pregnant women in an era of increasingly restrictive abortion laws. One thing that hasn't got a lot of attention... What happens when a pregnant woman is an addict? Here in Georgia, even before passage of the LIFE Act, the person administering medicine, drugs, or other substances with the intent of producing a miscarriage or abortion is open to criminal prosecution. So what if a woman knowingly endangers a fetus with drugs? Well, today we're focusing on how current and pending laws converge with Georgia's opioid crisis. Jenny Carroll joins us on the line from Birmingham, Alabama. She's a law professor at the University of Alabama. Hello, Jenny. Hello. Ed Johnson is also with us. He's joining us from Charleston. He works there at Offsite for Morehouse School of Medicine. He's Associate Director of Training and Technical Assistance in the Substance Use Disorder Treatment and Prevention Division. So that's at the National Center for Primary Care. Ed, thank you for being with us. Thank you for asking. Well, Jenny, I'm going to start with you. You're in Alabama, where the case we mentioned brought home for many people the implications of current and proposed abortion laws. Marsha Jones indicted by a grand jury for manslaughter for, quote, causing the loss of the fetus. What is the current Alabama law regarding manslaughter or child endangerment after a miscarriage? 
So this was the first case of prosecution that I know of, um, of a woman uh, for the death of her unborn child. Um, in terms of what the state of Alabama law is, it's heavily influenced by Alabama's decision to recognize unborn children as having full rights of personhood, just as Georgia has with its life statute. So in theory, at least, you could prosecute someone who caused the death of the unborn child, um, given that recognition of full personhood rights. So nearly one one million known pregnancies end in miscarriage or stillbirths. That's annually, according to government statistics. Does current law require reporting on miscarriages? So I don't know if public health laws require reporting on miscarriages. My guess is there is some requirement of reporting if it was a known pregnancy. Of course, lots of miscarriages occur um, before the woman even realizes she's pregnant. Um, So I think it's difficult to categorize those. And I I do want to be clear that a spontaneous miscarriage or stillbirth that you know, results from some condition within the woman's body that's not influenced by outside factors would not result in prosecution under Alabama's law or Georgia's law as I read it. Well, let's talk about uh, those outside factors. Is taking drugs considered to be an outside factor or negligent or prosecutable? Yes. So both Alabama and Georgia, as well as many states across the nation, have laws relating to cruelty to children that include exposing them to chemical substances that may either cause physical pain or damage to their development. Um, Because we've now had this shift and we're recognizing personhood rights for unborn children, those laws can now apply to the fetus as well as born children. Well, we should note that in Georgia, HB 481 signed into law as the LIFE Act faces court challenges before uh, it's scheduled to go into effect on January 1st. And it, it does, as you said, establishes personhood. It states the, quote, natural person means any human being, including an unborn child. So if a woman unintentionally causes the death of a fetus, could be charged with second-degree murder. Who makes that decision? In the case of uh, Marsha Jones, the prosecutor decided not to pursue it. Right. So prosecutors in the United States have lots of discretion about whether or not to bring a charge. What we saw in the Marche Jones uh, case was a use of that discretion by the prosecutor to not go forward, despite the fact that the grand jury had returned a true bill. Um, Certainly, the legislature also plays a component when they make a decision to pass laws like this. They send a strong message to the executive branch, who has the duty of enforcing law, that they believe these laws should be enforced and these individuals should be prosecuted. But it's always up to the prosecutor to make that discretionary decision. There's other areas of discretion that can also come into play. A judge, for example, has judicial discretion as to whether or not to allow a case to go forward. Um, And of course, a jury has discretion as to whether or not to convict a person based on the evidence presented in a trial if the case actually goes to trial. Well, one of the interesting things here is that the cases that have been prosecuted in states are about after testing a child after it's born and a mother once the child is born to see if they've been using drugs. And I want to bring you in here. You've counseled the number of women trying to get off drugs for their health and for that of their fetus. How hard is it for a woman in that situation to get clean? Well, for starters, um, it is challenging at any point in time for uh, a person who has a substance use disorder to get into recovery. Um, it's sometimes easier, sometimes, but but the the main thing with this whole discussion that I really want to insert right now is 
the one problem with all of these, what what states are doing, is that the one drug that we know causes the most damage when the mother ingests it during pregnancy is alcohol, mm-hmm. and nothing is done about that. And it it at least it seems to be that these cases are routinely targeted at women of color, um, and so it's. <laughs> It's it's a bit of a mess. Well, and it, I also understand from the reading that I did on this, tobacco is the most often abused drug during Correct. pregnancy, and that is also extremely harmful. Correct. Yeah. It's there. There are a lot of uh, low birth weight things like that. Yeah. So, what are the best practices for helping a woman in such a situation? And let's say alcohol or drugs. The. For starters, um, we know that when you criminalize drug use, um, that you're much less likely to have women seek prenatal care, which causes problems. I mean, that is just, we've known that for a long time. Um, there are programs, quite, uh, Georgia has, has quite a few of them, um, so does Alabama and most states, some more than others, that are inpatient residential programs for women who are pregnant and postpartum. Um, they're a safe environment, um, and that is that is the best option. And it would be wonderful if we had more of those, but but putting an inpatient facility where they can learn life skills also. Mm-hmm. So how about using other drugs to help women wean off of drugs? I'm thinking like methadone or bu. Uh, can you say it for me? Buprenorphine. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, buprenorphine. <laughs> the issue is, you know, when when a woman is misusing opioids, um, the whole lifestyle, the the um, you know the highs and the withdrawals, places stress on her. It also places stress on the um, the fetus. We know that medications like buprenorphine and methadone, that's the gold standard uh, because that levels off somebody's, uh, the the woman's um, serum blood level opioids. Um, There's a certain amount of controversy in that with, with old school addiction professionals, but all the research supports that that's what you want to do because that keeps the woman from a leading the lifestyle um, that goes along with active addiction um, and and B it stabilizes her and allows her a lot of places uh, tie um, prenatal care in with when they the the patients come in uh, for their medication okay. so it's a win-win Ed Johnson there he works off-site for Morehouse School of Medicine he trains people who offer opioid addiction treatment. Jenny Carroll is also with us, a a law professor from the University of Alabama. So I'm thinking here, Jenny, that this is part of the problem, that most of the prosecutions and the laws have been dealing with children once they are born and there's evidence of drug addiction or abuse. Most of our laws are about possession. So what you're doing, you're testing that someone has actually used drugs. Is, Is there a fine line there, especially when we're talking about a fetus, not a child that's born. Right. So the criminalization of use of narcotics, you're right. The Supreme Court has said that criminalizing a status is not permissible under the Constitution. They said that in the context of alcoholism, though lower courts have applied it in the context of substance abuse also. Um, So I think that's why prosecutors are going after women under child endangerment laws as opposed to prosecuting them just as drug users because they can't. 
But I actually want to add something too to something that Ed said. Um, which I think is important to emphasize. You know, before I started teaching law, I was a public defender. I represented men and women who were marginal. Many of them were people of color who were addicted to substances. And access to treatment facilities were virtually non-existent for my clients. There were so few state and federal funded facilities that could take them. If you had money, you could go to one of those inpatient treatment facilities. But if you didn't, you were simply shut out of those facilities. So when we talk about this impacting individuals of color or minority populations. I think it's also important to talk about it affecting poor populations and rural populations. And I look at Alabama and I look at Georgia, and there have been decisions made at the state level to close down rural hospitals, to cease providing treatment in these rural areas. And I think you are creating a challenge when you both criminalize the use of the narcotic, but you also don't offer opportunities for treatment. So even if you can get over all those complications Ed was describing with regard to treatment, you simply don't have access to the treatment to begin with. So I, I think it creates a real, really an untenable quandary for women who are in this position. And again, we're only talking about women because it's the prosecution of the pregnant person um, as opposed to, say, a third party who may also be participating in these activities who's right. not pregnant. Well, you're leading to something else that, you know, the idea that in the during the opioid crisis, there has been a shift in one. Yes, treatment centers have been closed, but I think there's a public attitude or a public perception that has shifted somewhat. We've changed. We've come back from the idea of a moral failing in drug addiction, and it's looked at more as a disease. And this may well be because more white middle class people have been affected by this disease. Do you think this reverses that? I mean, we're looking at an era when Governor Nathan Deal here in Georgia, the U.S. Congress have backed off and made criminal um, criminal justice reforms regarding mandatory sentences. Does, does legislation like HB 481 go in the opposite direction? I mean, the obvious answer is yes, but I think this is always part of the duality of the conversation we have in the United States about substance abuse. Um, you know, and again, this notion of substance abuse as a disease is not a new one. The Supreme Court case that I alluded to, um, Robinson spoke of alcoholism as a disease and a condition as opposed to a moral failing or inherent culpability. Um, so, I mean, I think we've always had this tension between how we define substance abuse and it absolutely and flows, certainly. And I, I think you're right. I think we are now in a position where we are tending more towards the disease size than the moral failing side of it. But when we talk about it in the context of an unborn child, because there's such fervor around this issue right now in these states, we are really stepping back from that consideration of it as a disease and treating it more as a moral failing. So we are creating greater obligations for the pregnant woman than we would for someone else. In this particular case with pregnant women. Well, of course, correct. opioid addiction, alcoholism, all challenge or negate a person's ability to make informed decisions. But legally, is clarity of mind a factor when a person is found to have committed a crime? It depends on what the mens rea is. So certainly for some of these statutes, yes, you would have to engage in a willful act, um, which would be an act that demonstrates that you understand what you're doing and the consequences of what you're doing. Other aspects of the statutes that women can be prosecuted and have been prosecuted under in states like Alabama and Georgia is the same way. There's lesser offenses that are just a negligence standard that only requires some knowledge of the risk and the potential for harm as opposed to an intent to actually cause the harm. 
Well, Ed, you've worked with a number of people who I'm sure terrible things have happened because of their addiction. And if we see like a drunk driver kills a child, plenty of people would want that driver behind bars. HB 481 says a fetus is a person, and that's what abortion rights opponents believe. So what do you say to people who think the punishment should be the same for a pregnant woman on drugs who miscarries as a driver who kills a child driving home from a bar? Sure. First off, I'll I'll be honest, I think that's very much a straw man argument. Um, I think what's more critical and more appropriate to look at is we know and we have known for a long time that addiction, substance use disorder is a chronic medical condition. And my question would be, do you treat pregnant women who have other chronic medical conditions in the same fashion? And if the answer is no, then you've got the answer right there. And unfortunately, you mentioned about the moral issue. It's not. It's a chronic medical condition. Would you treat the woman the same way? And unfortunately, we don't. Well, this is not hypothetical to you. In Georgia, substance abuse during pregnancy is not explicitly a crime. But you work in South Carolina where it is. Yes. And the state Supreme Court there upheld a woman's drug use as criminal child abuse. One woman addicted to drugs got 20 years in prison after giving birth to a child who died two two hours later. Mm-hmm. So you work with women in situations like these. Do you think the laws in South Carolina have led to fewer miscarriages from women who use drugs? I'll be honest, I I do anything that I would say about that would be anecdotal. My guess is it hasn't. One of the things, um, the, the decision you're talking about is the Whitner decision, which basically criminalized during the third trimester. Um, and what we know it has done is that routinely most OBGYNs do not test they will not test because they don't want to. They don't want to be put in that position. Um, but in, in the, some states, it's the law that any health worker who suspects it has to test. Correct, and it. <laughs> I think that's that's one of those that um, it it depends on the setting as to whether it would be reinforced routinely. Where that is done and where that is enforced is at. Um, hospital settings where the primary population um, is uh, minority Medicaid uh, patients. All right. I'm I'm sorry. We're going to close in just a minute. So I want to leave the last question to Jenny here. Is it accurate to say that HB 481 would make Georgia's legal code closer to South Carolina's when it comes to these kind of situations? It would. It would make it closer to a lot of these conservative statutes. And and I, I just want to add, too, when you talk about what it's going to criminalize, it's not only going to criminalize exposure to drugs or other substances. I mean, in theory, it could criminalize any sort of risk a woman engages in that causes harm to her child. So as someone who's the mother of two children, I drove cars. I flew in planes. I drank alcohol in my third trimester. Could I be prosecuted if it put my child at risk? In theory, yes, under these statutes. So I think you have to see it for the broad expanse that it may create. And and again, it's important to emphasize, it's not just medical conditions like addiction or other conditions like Ed was alluding to. It could be any risk. And, and that Jenny, should matter I'm to so us. sorry that we're out of time, yeah. but I thank you so much for your thorough answers. Law professor at the University of Alabama. Thank you. And Ed Johnson, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. R&B star R. Kelly faces new charges after he was arrested in Chicago last week. A federal court in Chicago added a 13-count indictment to five charges against him in New York. Charges include racketeering, forced labor, and sexual exploitation of children. 
Earlier this year, a lifetime documentary series called Surviving R. Kelly detailed accusations that the musician sexually exploited minors and young women. I felt like my silence allowed it to continue. I worked up the courage to come forward and tell my story. A part of me always felt like maybe I did something for him to treat me that way. I want my story to be heard so people could take this situation seriously. But when I found out it wasn't just me, I just don't want it to get any worse. While the allegations against R. Kelly are shocking, they're not isolated. The FBI says Atlanta has one of the highest rates of child exploitation and trafficking in the country. Jennifer Frisco Bartle sees the lasting effects of these crimes every day. She's director of residential and clinical programs at Wellspring Living, which provides trauma-informed care and residential programs for female survivors of sexual abuse and exploitation. I asked her about the kind of allegations discussed in the documentary. Allegations of childhood sexual abuse, um, rape, um, statutory rape, sex with minors, um, and child pornography. It's an unbelievably shocking story. And, and one of the allegations entails that he held women against their will, some of them teenagers, in houses in Chicago, in Atlanta. It's described as almost cult-like. Is that a technique that perpetrators use? Absolutely. What it ends up looking like is Stockholm Syndrome. Um, and what we call in our field is a trauma bond. So he has created relationships with people where he's used his position of power to make them feel as though they don't have a choice. Um, I imagine the doors aren't locked. I imagine they can leave if they want to, which is why he's been able to skate by and, and avoid kidnapping charges. But he has brainwashed them to the point that they feel as though they have to stay. And you heard one of those young women say, I figured it must have been me. So they think they belong there on some level? Absolutely. They feel as though they have to stay. They owe him something that they would be disappointing him if they left. He has really, in a sophisticated manner, removed any choice or any agency that they think they have. Now, one of the places R. Kelly is accused of holding young women is in Metro Atlanta. What is it about this city that may have made that an option? I think it could happen in any city, um, and I just imagine that he found a space here. There's a, a large music industry presence here, and he was doing work here, needed um, a home. I believe he had several homes. Um, I think that trafficking happens um, in every city, in every state, in the country. And unfortunately, regardless of what city you live in, if it's a large metropolitan city like Atlanta or a more rural city, for many different reasons, we don't see it when it's happening right in front of us, and it then becomes kind of easy to look away or imagine that it's not happening. But do these issues show up in Georgia in ways that they may not in other places? Definitely. This is a large uh, metropolitan city, Atlanta. We have the uh, busiest airport. We have uh, the sports teams convention center. So there are lots of reasons for people to come through Atlanta, and it's ripe for people to want to um, participate in what we call sex tourism. That's often the way that we think of it, right? That we think of sexual exploitation and trafficking of minors may be putting sex workers on the street. But there's a lot more going on. So what are some of the other forms that it does take? It actually doesn't happen much on the street anymore. Most of it happens online and it's prearranged. So when, when people come here for sexual tourism, they've arranged what they're looking for in a sexual experience with the traffickers before they get here.
I think a lot of people who watch that documentary and hearing stories like this could be asking, you know, how could this happen? And can you help flesh that out? What are some of the ways that perpetrators lure young women into these kind of situations? It's often a person of power. Um, so in R. Kelly's instance, I mean, these girls thought he was a god. They thought that they he was doing them a favor by allowing them to even be in his presence. Um, but it doesn't have to be that sophisticated, and you don't have to be a celebrity. You just have to be somebody that knows how to take advantage of somebody's vulnerabilities. How about witnesses, though? Family and friends? I think that we don't want to believe that this happens. We can't imagine that somebody would take advantage of someone, a child or an adult, in that way. And it's a little bit nuanced. So when it looks as though they have a choice to leave... We um, we can be judgmental. We often, just as humans, tend to blame the victim. If you're purse snatched, we don't say, I'm sorry that that happened to you. We say, why did you have your purse in your buggy? You mm. should have been paying better attention. Mm-hmm. Well, there's also the well-worn image of who is being exploited. And one juror who was quoted in the Lifetime series argued he didn't consider young black women to be victims because of the way they, quote, dressed and acted. Now, Georgia Cares, that's the state coordinating agency supporting child survivors of sex trafficking and exploitation. They found that over half of the survivors they worked with over just the last year were young women or young girls of color. How do these perceptions of race play into that victim blaming? I think that that is an excellent point. It's easier for us to turn a blind eye to groups that we feel are marginalized that don't look like us that don't represent us and so if you can put somebody into a category of other it makes it easier for you to think well that can't happen to me can't happen to my kids and maybe because we have this construct of what a young black woman should look like or should act like um, or is for sexually then what things happen to her are probably her fault So, but I think there's often the other cases made that so many young women are sexualized in our culture. So it's not just young women of color, but you said if they don't look or act like us. So we're looking again at the predominating culture looking at the other. It's absolutely the other. Yep. Class dynamics are also involved in situations like this. So how does that, the socioeconomic or the poverty, play into that? Well, all of those things play into it. It really is a social justice issue. So you have the other of being female. So you've got gender. You have the other of being raised in poverty or having to go without. Oftentimes, kids that we work with say the the way that they were recruited um, or introduced was somebody bought them a meal. So if your needs aren't being met, it's easy then for somebody to come in and offer you what they think you need. Then you feel like you owe them and then they get you to do something that you might not want to do. So you put race and gender and class and then you add in sometimes LGBTQ status. You have a group of people that we can just put in this other category that we don't have to pay attention to. Is there a particular risk for LGBTQ youth? Youth who are LGBTQ identified and particularly transgendered youth are at an increased risk for being trafficked. Um, Transgender youth in Atlanta um, looking for jobs, looking for places to work. And if they are in the process of transitioning, oftentimes it's difficult for them to find jobs. And they begin to feel that the only work for them is sex work. 
Well, the Fulton County District Attorney's Office is investigating a Metro Atlanta case related to R. Kelly. Uh, uh, mother and father say that their daughters got caught up with R. Kelly and that they haven't heard from the young women in years. How do perpetrators isolate their victims in this way? As you say, you know, even when the door may not be locked. Isolation is key. If, if, if the perpetrator can remove you from any other perspectives other than the one that he or she wants you to have, you begin to think um, that they're the only voice of reason. Um, also, there's a lot of shame and stigma associated with the things that go on in human trafficking and sex work and transactional sex relationships. So young people begin to feel further and further removed from their family the more they're in it and the more that they are isolated from those other perspectives. So they begin to believe if their perpetrator tells them, your family won't take you back. You can't go back to a regular high school and go to prom and and be a regular kid because you're forever different now. Who was protecting him? All of the adults around him. Um, I also would believe and suggest that the people that continue to buy his music, the people that continue to support him, the people that continue to say to separate who he is as an artist from what he does as a human. So uh, in the documentary, they talked about R. Kelly versus Robert Kelly being two different people, same people. And the the music bears that out. Mm. I'm speaking with Jennifer Frisco Bartle. She's director of residential and clinical programs at Wellspring Living. Well, let's get into that a little bit because there's this movement, Mute R. Kelly, created by black women, popularized by a Twitter hashtag. They argue that uh, for a full boycott of the artist and his music, we know that Lady Gaga pulled her collaborations with him from streaming platforms, so did Chance the Rapper. Uh, Bethany Walker Branch and Kurt Reynolds, they had a conversation about this for Atlanta's Next Gen Radio. I was an R. Kelly fan coming up. Wholeheartedly, I mean, to, to be honest with you, probably wasn't until I actually did a very, very minor amount of research into um, the allegations against him that I realized, oh my, oh man, like this guy's this guy's a sicko, right? <laughs> and right. I never really, I never really knew that. So I feel, you know, if you do separate the artist from the art, you're, I mean, essentially allowing someone to, you know, operate without any uh, consequences. So there's the uh, hate the sinner, uh, hate the sin, love the sinner kind of idea in that support. Is listening to R. Kelly's music supporting him? Absolutely. Absolutely. He is able to get away with what he does because he hasn't felt any pain. He hasn't lost anything that he's had no consequences uh, personally or professionally or legally. So R. Kelly's essential hits album landed on the Billboard 200 charts doing well, seemingly in response to the documentary. Is there a backlash then to the backlash? That's frightening for me. (laughs) Um, There's no um, denying that he is a talented artist, whether you like his music or not. Um, However, I don't think you can separate the two. And we vote with what we spend our money on. So if we are saying, you know, I can listen to this music and he's benefiting from that, then he, he doesn't feel any loss. And so for people, you asked me earlier, you know, who's who's helping him, the, the adults that are around him. But it's it's the people that's buying his music. It's the people that continue to attend the concerts that are essentially saying without saying whatever else you're doing off stage. I don't it's either OK with me or I don't care. 
let's talk about the survivors here. You've spent more than 20 years working with women and children, now interact with survivors at Wellspring Living. How do they eventually get out of these abusive, traumatic environments? Oftentimes the kids and uh, the women that we work with, they don't recognize themselves as survivors um, or victims of human trafficking. That's, that's a pretty big definition that we use to raise awareness of the issues. They think I was in a relationship with somebody who really cared about me. He took great care of me. Um, all traffickers aren't men also. So uh, she fed me. She provided me a place to stay. She was kinder to me than my own parents. Um, so often those relationships that end up being really abusive and really manipulative, they don't recognize it as such until they've been removed from it. So they were isolated. In some ways, we need to isolate them from those manipulative relationships to get them to see, you know, maybe there is another way. Maybe that relationship that I thought was so helpful to me was actually really hurtful. But once they get out of that psychological hold, uh, I imagine there's a lot of work to do, you know, physically, emotionally, to heal. And, and with all of that shame, how do you at Wellspring and other organizations, for that matter, help them heal? It starts with some psychoeducation about what trafficking is. So that's, again, a big word, but break it down to the smaller pieces. So they recognize that that is, in fact, what happened to them. Um, and then it starts with building them back up as a whole human with the things that they're interested in. So for kids, that's what are you interested in school? We have kids who come to our school on campus in our program and they say, I want to learn more. Can we have a language class? I want to, I want to be doing all these things that I missed out on when I wasn't in school. So these aren't kids to be thrown away. These are kids who want to thrive. Um, in our women's program, we have women who say, I want a job. I want to work in an office. I want to work at Delta. Um, I have other skills to offer besides my body, and I would like to make a living wage doing something meaningful. So did the documentary open the door, do you think, for other victims to tell their stories? I mean, when it was released, several made memes and even jokes on social media online. Has this uncovered traumatic memories for other victims? It's definitely, I think, been triggering for people to see what happened to them again the shame and stigma serves to protect the perpetrator because we just don't talk about what happened to us and now people are seeing well maybe if she can tell her story and she can go on tv and cry and talk about the really horrific things that happen then maybe i could do the same thing well as you mentioned you know it's hard to wrap your head around the fact that his sales are booming and, but there have been arguments that I've seen bubbling up that white perpetrators of crimes like this are not chased down in the same way as high-profile black men like R. Kelly or like a Bill Cosby, for example, that just comes to mind. How do we navigate these conversations when there is also real harm to real people? Right. So it's, it's dangerous to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. So to say, because men of color tend to be perpetrated, tend to be prosecuted, tend to be incarcerated at much higher rates, that if somebody is doing something wrong, like Bill Cosby, like OJ, like R. Kelly, that we would turn the other way. So we can't have it both ways. So yes, we should be addressing the higher rates of incarceration and, and prosecution of people of color, particularly men of color, and 
there are men of color who are committing real crimes that need to be held accountable. How about the perception? I mean, right now we're talking about saving victims. 20 years ago, prosecutors were still focused on throwing, you know, so-called prostitutes into prison. How has that changed? We don't use that word anymore. uh, If you can't consent for sex, you can't be a child prostitute. So um, we call that a a victim of of human trafficking, of, of sexual exploitation of children. So the laws are different now. Instead, if you are recovered um, with a buyer or with a trafficker, you get services, you get help instead of being blamed. Jennifer Frisco Bartle, Director of Residential and Clinical Programs at Wellspring Living. The organization provides trauma-informed care and residential programs for female survivors of sexual abuse and exploitation. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Jake Troyer, and LaRaven Taylor. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Our interns are Allison Kraussman and Jessica Lowell. Don Smith is our Dean of Grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. Sarah Shariari is managing editor for GPB News. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for listening.